Third time's a charm. Three is a magic number. Hello and welcome to Third Time's a Charm, the show that takes an in-depth look at the third installment of a franchise. This is episode 48, Star Trek Beyond, and I'm your host, Captain Mike. And welcome to the mighty conclusion of the Star Trek Part 3 saga. Today I'm once again joined by Captain Dan the Duke Hayden. Together we're trapped in another dimension, the Kelvin Timeline, where everyone in the cast is super hot. He's here to see what crazy adventure this crew's gotten itself into this time in this wacky new reality. This movie is directed by Justin Lin of the Fast and Furious fame, FFF triple f's whose action instincts and sensibilities really mesh well in the trek verse that jj abrams established maybe slightly less lens flares maybe but anyway without further ado dock at the massive spaceport catch the anti-gravity slipstream and set your phasers to fun because we're going beyond This is movie three in a three-movie mission. The end of the Star Trek trilogy of shows. I am here with my number one, Dan the Duke Hayden. He has been upgraded. He was a ensign. <laughs> then he was science officer. Now he is second in command. So, Dan, thanks once again for joining me for all three of these Star Trek films. Welcome back. Thank you, Captain. It's it's good to be here. Today we are talking Star Trek Beyond from 2016. This one was directed by Justin Lin uh, of Fast and Furious fame. You know, almost single-handedly revived that franchise that's kind of relevant for the network. There's a show here, Too Fast, Too Forever, that watches all those movies forever over and over again. So uh, that's pretty cool to see Justin Lin. I consider him sort of uh, one of the more modern masters of action. So it's great to see him. We are here with our third movie in our third cast second set of characters but third cast hard to explain dan you know let's not bury the lead let's talk about this kelvin universe let's talk about the new star trek uh starting from 2009 the jj abrams revival if you will you know before getting into beyond let's go a little bit into your history with these movies how, how are you feeling about star trek uh once it sort of came back in 2009 came back with a vengeance some might say so when I heard about the reboot, I was extremely skeptical. I was like, oh, great. Finally, it's taken long enough. They're finally going to butcher my favorite intellectual property of all time. And then um, I think it was the Super Bowl, I want to say, they dropped a 
trailer and I'm, I was very surprised. I was like, wow, that looks actually kind of cool. I like the art style they chose. And uh, I started getting a glimpse more of like the cast. And uh, I don't know, like I, I had hope. And then my buddy, him and his uh, family, they owned a uh, an old movie theater. And uh, every so often they do premieres for like people that they knew. And so I remember the night before the movie came out at midnight, you know, we popped a bunch of bottles of champagne and popcorn and, and we watched this movie in a small theater up there, the first one. And holy crap, I was absolutely blown away, man. The f- reboot or remake is just, it's astounding. My favorite part about it being a reboot is that they explain why it's a reboot in the plot of the story, that it's an alternate timeline. It's an alternate universe. That's where they had me. I was enjoying the movie, but when they explained that what Nero had done and how he had changed everything with the Calvin being destroyed, it blew my mind. I'm like, holy crap. They actually wrote in why, like how this is possibly a reboot because yeah, it's an alternate timeline. And, and I've enjoyed it since. I really, really like the first one. It's one of those movies that if it's on, no matter what portion of the movie it's in, I'll stick around and watch it. It's it's a great movie. Yeah, I definitely was kind of shocked how much I loved the 2009 Star Trek soft reboot. It's not quite remake. It's it's cool because it's so many things, you know, like you can't really pigeonhole it. It's something very unique and of its time regarding how sort of... Uh, meta-referential and everything that movie is, sort of winking at the audience and recognizing the entire history of Star Trek and yet sort of creating a whole new one and saying, like, everything still exists. Like, it does a very clever thing as far as keeping all the old Trek canon and all the new stuff connected. They're having their cake and eating it too, and they sort of get to have all of it happening at once. It sort of reminds me now how Sony is sort of splitting the Spider-Man property, and they're saying, you know, there's sort of this multiverse out there and it's it's kind of a common thing in comic books but it's becoming new in the sort of film universe and we're going to hear about like the DC multiverse and all that kind of stuff as well it's Star Trek had it, you know? I mean, and they had it even earlier in their show. It's sort of inherent and built into the show with the Mirror Mirror universe. So there are multiple universes, and we've seen it even in Next Generation episodes, you know? The idea that this can happen, it's built into the show's history, you know? So it's, it's really easy to kind of accept that. I think I was at a midnight showing as well for this. Like, I was very excited. I was super pumped. I was a big Star Trek fan. I was a big J.J. Abrams fan. I know everyone wanted him to reboot Star Wars after this, which eventually he got that gig too. I mean, what a guy. He gets to do Star Trek and Star Wars. <laughs> Two films in both franchises, you know? Um, some might say to diminishing returns, but whatever. Uh, I Yeah, I totally like the way he brought this all back. I love this cast. I'm kind of sketchy on, on Star Trek Into Darkness. I'll ask your opinion on that next. But I really like Star Trek Beyond. You know, I think it's at a place... The franchise is at a place now where they should be pumping these movies out every year or two. Like, they should just... There should. I don't know why there haven't been two more to talk about since this one, Dan. Let's continue along this alternate timeline. How were your thoughts when Star Trek Into Darkness was on the horizon? Well, I was really, really excited. I was living in Vermont at the time. So like going to the movies, when you work at a resort, usually you and your friends don't have like the same schedules when you have friends that work there. So I found myself like traveling long distances to being able to watch movies by myself. And I was really excited to see Into Darkness. And funny enough, I left the theater being like, wow, that was amazing. That was great. And I maybe talked to like a couple of people that like had mixed emotions about it. So I did what any self-respecting fan would do. I went back a week later and watched it again. And I was like, oh yeah, this 
this wasn't that great. Crap. I don't know what, maybe it was just like the blinding eyes of seeing another Star Trek movie. But yeah, the first viewing, I was all on board. Kind of was looking at it maybe through a different lens the second time. I noticed that I don't know if I want to sit down and watch Into Darkness again. When me and you talked about doing this, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll sit down. I'll watch the first one again, which is one of my favorite movies of like the last, you know, 15 years. And, you know, I guess I'll watch Into Darkness with something on the background. I didn't have time to do either, but I've seen the first one dozens of times. So I don't think I needed really much of a review of it. And yeah, in the darkness, I'm just kind of mad on. I've watched it maybe three or four times, and I don't like a lot of the choices they made. I mean, I do like some of the nods back to the older stuff and to the Wrath of Khan stuff, but so much of the cast is not utilized properly, like they did in the first one and in this one. Again, it's been it's been a while since I've watched it again, so I can't quite pinpoint exactly what I dislike about it. Maybe you have a fresher memory of it? Uh, not really. There's things that sort of stick out in my mind about it. I remember all the stuff about Khan, and I remember the, every Everybody calling the production on it immediately and then turn around and be like, no, 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 like Cumberbatch is not playing Khan. He's playing this other dude with a different name. And then sure enough, he's playing Khan, right? I just think for me, like they've established this universe now where they could go off in any direction they want. So why are they going to retread Wrath of Khan? Even if it's not step by step, they're taking those elements already and rehashing that kind of stuff, you know? And I was like, wow, you're sort of burning your momentum already, you know, like with the second movie. Like you could really take this in a different direction without reminding people where this came from already. We already know. Like that was such a great way to reintroduce everything with old Spock meeting new Spock and like establishing that world. Like who knows who could be coming through from any other dimension? We don't even know. So I was a little bummed in the first place that we were going to do Wrath of Khan all over again. Uh, I also remember faint hints of Klingons. So I'm kind of bummed. Uh, we'll get into it with this movie. I'm bummed that the Klingons aren't sort of the main antagonist antagonists in this movie. I remember there's an evil Peter Weller from the bad Starfleet man. So they tried to sort of cram in evil Starfleet. We also had like the doctor who Kirk was supposed to fall in love with. I mean, just way too many elements and not enough freshness. Okay. And so ultimately, I think with this movie, they said you could kind of skip over that. It didn't hold any bearing. Oh, the final thing about that, magical con blood or something? Like, there was some blood that brought people back to life. It was weird. There was some really sketchy stuff going on in that one. So I, I was unfortunately underwhelmed. However, I, was, I wanted more. It was almost enough, like the cast was almost enough, like the, the energy, the visuals, like all of the stuff surrounding the bad sort of storyline and things, or the or I should just say the, the retread, the familiarity of it, all the rest of it was still good and enticing. And so I was ready for sort of a better version of this new cast again, you know? I was like, okay, they could still pull it together. I think they got a, a good one coming up. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And to reinforce it beyond, like, all belief, this movie is all about the cast. Holy crap, are these movies the cast? Like, this might be my favorite ensemble cast of recent memory. Like, they've picked everybody so wise and so purposely. And to go back to your point about you think they should be cranking these out every year, I believe the problem is contracts and issues with locking down every single person in this cast. To be fair, I mean, like, could you do this with another one of these without Zachary Quinto? I don't think so. 
that occurred to me to be uh, they sort of shot themselves in a foot or painted themselves into a corner with this cast because everybody is now off being super successful in their own right doing stuff. So it's like an incredibly expensive cast to get. They didn't come from nowhere in a way or from television in a way that the original casts did. So you didn't really need to bump their salaries so much every time you brought them back. But now these are all like legit established movie stars. You know, this is the first thing I saw Chris Pine in. Very first thing probably saw Zoe Saldana in. And I think she was in, like, Avatar the same year. So she became a queen of sci-fi feature films <laughs> after this. But, yeah, de- definitely. Great point. Yeah, she's great. I want to say I've seen her in something prior to this. Chris Pine, I couldn't tell you if this was the first thing I saw Chris Pine in. Zachary Quinto also was in something before this. Heroes. Oh, he was in Heroes. You know, see, I'm not a big fan of Heroes. But season one was dope. I think he was Siler, like the evil hero or something. <laughs> Maybe I'll go back and try it again. I don't know. Something about Heroes really soured me early on, and I didn't enjoy it. There was way too many sort of powers going on in that movie. I hear you, though. <laughs> I think I just wanted to just go back and watch X-Men the Animated Series anytime that I started watching an episode of Heroes. But, dude, there's, like, Carl Urban, right? There's another, like, huge sci-fi staple now. Like, he's been in tons of stuff from, like, Doom, Riddick, fucking Dread. He's great in Dread. War of the Rings. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Simon Pegg, who's huge sci-fi sort of fan, sort of got his foot in the door with Space, and then all the Edgar Wright stuff. Like, he's such a sci-fi guy, I feel, when I think of when I think of him, he fits right in here. He's also a franchise guy. I mean, he's part of the, one of the most successful franchises on the planet right now, the Mission Impossible franchise. Oh, that's right. Absolutely. Shout out Tom Tom Club. <laughs> You know, John Cho, right? Well, I knew from Harold and Kumar, but like is definitely holding his own. I think he's supposed to be playing Spike in the Cowboy Bebop live action. Yep, which I'm very much looking forward to. I really hope they don't fuck this up, kind of uh, like favorite intellectual properties. Yeah, I'm happy with that casting as well. I think that'll be good. And then, you know, R.I.P. Anton Yelchin, unfortunately, uh, won't be coming back. But what's crazy is how well they all sort of assume the role like they play the character they're not playing the actor doing a version of the character you know i don't feel like anyone's doing an impression of anybody i feel like zachary quinto spock he's not leonard nimoy as spock in fact you get to see him face to face with leonard nimoy and you see how subtly different they're playing the role granted they're aged apart at that point but you know even zoe saldana she is not playing that Ahura. She's doing her own spin on Ahura. Same with sort of Carl Urban. You get the spirit of Bones, but it's not the Forrest Kelly. Yeah. Do you feel that as well? Yeah, they all play the same character, but a different interpretation. It's the perfect way of putting it. Funny moment that I noticed in this about Carl Urban, and, and it made me laugh really, really hard and write way too many notes about it. But I really like the cast obviously trying to put their spin on some of the most beloved characters of all time. I couldn't have said it better, man. You know, it's just so hard because they're so well known and those characters are owned by those actors so well. With Chris Pine especially, I was really worried with the original movie, but then that's what sort of snapped all this into place for me later on where I was like, oh, he's not doing Shatner, he's doing Captain Kirk. You know, it was weird I was able to sort of delineate between the two and how I can still do that with not just this recap, but that's like behind any good recast, right? Like anytime they sort of bring someone in to take over an established role, you're like, all right, if it's the character, that's cool. You know, that's all that really matters if that's the same, you know? So as long as it's not someone wildly different playing someone wildly different, you're you're all right. I like Chris Pine's take on Kirk in a different way than Shatner's Kirk because Shatner's Kirk has like almost like a quiet confidence 
that's like just so overstated like you know like he wouldn't just scream you know like oh fire fire the missiles right now he'd be like fire the missiles now nah. he'd have like a very like deliberate cooler subtle way of saying it whereas like chris pine just like hauls off and just starts screaming all the time but it's this it's the same exact confidence though yeah it's just sort of channeled differently like i feel like maybe it, they get into it a little in this maybe it's the circumstances of their upbringing and birth and you know th those are the things that have changed but i feel like original kirk is sort of more dramatic like he's got sort of more like patience maybe or he's willing to wait and sort of spring a trap whereas i feel like this kirk is more impulsive and less composed and sort of rushes into things a bit more and, and is like more of like an on the fly sort of thinker um but still like feels like the character could go either way you know like you see that happen in the original series too you see kirk be impulsive and then you also see him in this be more contemplative and, and so they they share those traits it's just the, they're each of them are like dominant and differently i don't know exactly how I'm trying to say that they each portray those those traits differently some more dominant than the other i guess but it's like you said it could be easily as explained as maybe he's more impulsive and has less of a calm cool collected vibe maybe that was due to the lack of his father not being in the picture his whole life or you know maybe it was due to some maybe some negative male role models growing up or somebody giving him a little bit more of a push in the right direction. I mean, when we find Kirk as an adult in Iowa in the first movie, he's just sitting at a bar hitting on cadets, you know? Yeah, he's wasting his life. He's like a like a total roustabout. And and we do have to say, like, the conditions of his birth are epic, you know? Like, he is born into fire. I think there's a line in here, something towards the end, which, like, sums up everything where, oh, what is it? Where he's like, I'll risk my life to save others instead of survive to... I'd rather risk my life to save others than take life to save mine. Is It's something like that. He references sort of that he knows the conditions of his birth sort of have affected him. He, this movie is sort of about accepting who he is and not running from that instead of trying to be his father in a lot of ways or trying to live up to other people like he's learning about more accepting himself. And I think being born under those conditions are very traumatic, whether you know it or not at the time. But like in the middle of a battle, being the one of the only survivors of an escape pod in the ship where your father risked his life to save like an entire world, like it's crazy you know when you grow up thinking about that like it's gonna mess you up so uh that's something he had to deal with that original kirk just did not have on his mind at all and i love it i will say this about into darkness it has a different tone than the first one everything has to do with the moment of the calvin's destruction i mean it, you, you said it. i mean the last thing that george does before he dies is names his son so so everything is connected back to that moment and how george was in this no-win scenario and he saved the lives of kirk and to make the timeline and have all these amazing adventures and rescues that kirk would go on with his crew all come back to the fact that george sacrificed himself to save his child a no-win scenario in the first movie he doesn't believe in no-win scenarios Kirk is going to always find a way out of the situation. In the second movie, he faces more or less a, a no-win scenario. I'll say the, the one thing I do remember about Into Darkness I enjoyed was when the evil captain is pretty much telling Kirk, like, nah, man, you fucked up. You can't talk your way 
or figure out a way out of this. You and your crew are about to die, and it's all your fucking fault. And, like, the panic and frantic nature of what, like, Chris Pine brings out of the character in that moment, I remember really, really liking that a lot. Um, so, yeah, and then this movie is almost having the knowledge of how to not believe in a no-win scenario and then having also lived through one this movie kind of almost ties that together of of now he's got like the best of both as uh pike said he wants to leap without thinking but he also needs to take into account the fact that he's already lost crew members and that he might lose more or even his his own life if he makes the wrong decision in this one he sort of cheated his way through the Kobayashi Maru in school, but then he had to kind of face a version of that in Into Darkness and realized, like, this is a lose-lose situation. You can't cheat your way out of it in real life. And so now you have, like, a bit of a more sort of wizened Kirk who has, like, taken a bit of a loss, you know? Like, he took a hit and, like, he's growing from it. And I think that the, when, the, when this movie starts, I think you can kind of feel that. And maybe that's, like, the one thing from the last movie carrying over is just sort of his sense of not necessarily failure, per se, but the idea that he's not perfect, like, that he's got a lot to learn still, you know? And I think that's where he's coming from when this begins, where he's like not finding himself living up to his father's deeds and expectations and abilities and stuff. And the idea is like, no, dude, like you just have to figure out your own way. Yeah, doesn't he say he's one year older than his father lived to be? Oh, that's heavy, man. He made it one year past the old man. Yeah. That brings us to Star Trek Beyond. JJ is not here. We got Justin Lin, as I mentioned earlier, which I think is cool. It brings a very fresh energy to this. Just real quick, talking about like Justin Lin, I think one reason that the Fast franchise sort of started gaining a lot of momentum once he got behind the wheel there uh, is because of his action instincts. Like It almost reminds me a little bit of more like 80s or old John Woo type stuff where he shows a lot of the action and it's a lot... It's very sort of um, story-driven type action. You know, it's not just sort of nonsense action, if you know what I mean. Like, the whole sort of final 20 minutes of Fast and Furious 3 is like there's like no almost no dialogue and it's all getting ready for the big downhill race and then like it's the big downhill race like it's just you know it's very story oriented I always felt and I think like that's really cool like that helps it be sort of less noticeable in a lot of ways I don't know do you notice anything in particular just in general when you're watching like a Justin Lin movie do you know like can you tell are you a fan of those Fast and Furious movies do you like the action in this before we get into uh, before we get too much further into it just uh, regarding Justin Lin like, are you a fan of his stuff? I love Justin Lin, and this movie just screams. His fingers are all over this movie. Space drifting? Space drifting. I absolutely adore the Fast and Furious movies. I am actually a patron of Too Fast, Too Forever. Uh, I'm a big fan of theirs as well. And the, the more I've... I've watched those movies and stuff that Justin Lin has done. He does really know how to paint a picture with his action sequences. They're not throwaway. They really do add. And like you said, they are almost like John Woo. They, they've just got a lot of plot in what he's trying to do. Even just like the fact that they use the ship, the ship has to be like literally space drifting. I am a big fan of his, and I, I like the way that he puts together his action sequences, yeah. Yeah, I think he did a really good job of using the aesthetic of this world that's already been set up, like the look of the world, right? Like the dirty camera lens in space and the, the super wide shots and, and, you know, the really just beautiful 
effects and, and everything. I think he really utilized that very well in this movie. He's able to play really well in other people's sandbox, mm-hmm. right? Like, it doesn't feel that dissimilar from the JJ stuff, except, like, it feels more refined in the way that it's cut. Like, it just knows where it's cutting a little better, I think, than the JJ. Like, there's a better tempo to it, you know better rhythm more of a pace to it and then just with his with his actor directing he's not really given a ton to do like the actors themselves aren't really going through that many emotions in this movie but i feel like he's bringing a lot out of them like he's got very few moments and very small moments to drag stuff out of these actors and i think he's doing a great job of finding sort of like these main beats to hit with everybody it's cool how he pairs them up too with it with people so like bones is stuck with spock they get on each other's nerves he ha- he's a doctor he's got a heel spock so like he's sort of got to get over like a little bit of his spock bias and you see bones kind of grow a little bit as a person throughout his little journey with Spock and you know he rubs off on Spock as well and he becomes a little more humorous by the end of their little encounter and everything so do you feel a little bit of like a difference between the way JJ and Justin are directing their actors it's it's fun because I feel like especially with the first movie and this movie the character interactions are like my favorite parts so in a lot of ways I feel like they kind of seamlessly roll together really well I love the the Spock McCoy little at each other's throats in this movie, especially because, you know, they, they kind of have to be the odd couple. But they also work so well together because you've got this very no bullshit, angry Southern doctor and this very, very also logical, equally no bullshit Vulcan. You'd think they'd get along perfectly, but they absolutely hate each other. Yeah, right. Two stubborn mules that like can't stand each other. Exactly. So them forcing each other, forcing them to kind of work together this whole time is is a great play. I also especially love near the end of the movie where Spock forces McCoy to go with him onto the alien ship as well. And I think McCoy says something to the effect of, wait, wait, you want me to do what with who? They're bantering to each other about Spock needing to have like emergency surgeries saying like oh yeah i gotta get this thing out of you this pipe out of you if i leave it in you you die if i pull it out you bleed to death you die mccoy's just like hey spock what's your favorite color and he's like well i don't see any relevance to that and he pulls the thing out of him he's just like well you know i hear surprise helps and and spock's like to quote what you just said you know i believe that's horseshit and i don't i was dying it's so freaking funny man the character dynamics are pretty good when you get them paired off on the planet sort of later on in the film. Okay, so let's get a little deeper into this one. Let me sort of backpedal a bit and uh, just drop the plot real quick so that we can just talk about it freely. We don't have to worry about sort of jumping around anymore. And then, like, you know, we'll have sort of a, a reference for everything else we're talking about. Engage. All right. So as it starts off, Kirk is an amb- his ambassadorship on an alien world is not going well as he tries to deliver an ancient artifact to a strange group of aliens. The Enterprise and crew are on year three of their f- classic five-year mission that you heard about on the TV show. They are docking at Yorktown Base, a enormous base station it's almost a dyson sphere this thing is out of control it's like mc escher in space they are on the edge of a unexplored nebula that can't be charted and on the other side is a mysterious planet 
where a distress vehicle, a sort of escaped refugee from that planet has come to Yorktown and asked for Federation help in going there to help her crew leave the planet. Um, she helps them navigate the nebula, and when they get there, they are attacked. They should have seen it coming. It's the Nero play from the first movie. There's sort of a distress call. They get there. The Enterprise has the shit kicked out of it. It is Crawl, not Kroll, but Crawl, played by Idris Elba, who uh, is looking for the artifact that Kirk has, who they tried to give away in the opening scene to the funny little aliens. The Enterprise crew is sort of split up. They all land on the planet in different locations. Sulu and Uhura are captured by Kroll, and they are trying to escape the hive, which is drone army controls. Jim lands with Chekhov in the woods, where they fight their way to meet with Scotty, who has found Jayla, who is an alien pirate refugee girl kicking ass and taking names and has discovered an old Federation ship that has crash-landed there hundreds of years ago. They all try to get that ship in working order so that they can just basically get off the planet and warn the Federation about Kral and his plan to decimate the entire galaxy with this secret ancient weapon that he is trying to acquire. They are able to track down and locate the Hive. They rescue Uhura and all of the rest of the crew and everyone else, but it's too late because Kral has launched across the nebula and is attacking Yorktown base with his drone army. The Enterprise figure out a way to disrupt their signal with a sonic disruptor. They play the Beastie Boys to destroy the fleet. There is a crazy upside-down anti-gravity chase inside of the Yorktown base between Kral and Kirk. We find Find out Crawl is actually none other than Balthazar. He is an old starship captain who is sort of marooned in space, found his way to that planet, used a strange alien technology to expand his life. Now he is back for revenge, but Kirk and the crew stop him. He is shot out into space, absorbed by his own super weapon, and the galaxy is saved once more. Kirk celebrates a birthday, everyone toasts, and... We haven't had another movie yet, but fingers crossed that they'll be back. I hear there's a great script by Tarantino floating around out there. That'd be pretty interesting, right? The Tarantino Calvin timeline movie. I'd, I'd, I'd enjoy seeing that script. Apparently he's a big fan. So did I leave anything out? It seems it seems like you got it, man. I think you did a good job there. This movie is actually much more straightforward. They actually make a lot of like sort of self-referential lines about that. I like how Kirk's quote in the beginning talks about how his missions have become episodic in nature. It's a very funny sort of shout out to the TV series. But basically, this there's a lot of previous Star Trek movies and shows kind of scrambled up into this. We just we get a you know basically a. A phony distress call where the alien wants Federation technology to destroy the Federation and take over. It's it's a disgruntled employee again, <laughs> basically <laughs> here. What were your general thoughts? Now, don't get me wrong. Like, I do like this movie a lot, but I am going to kind of pick it apart a little bit just out of love and um, how I wish it could have just been a little better. Maybe maybe if Justin Lin got a pass at the script, too. But general impressions with this one, part three, Star Trek Beyond, Dan, how did you feel when you first saw this? When I first saw it, um, I really enjoyed it. This might be one of the Star Trek movies that I like that I've seen the least. Maybe three or four times I've seen this now. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I just finished watching it before we started uh, recording. I enjoyed it. There's, there's a lot about it that I think you could tweak 
little things here or there to make the script a little bit better. And maybe not as like you were saying, you know, it's it's a disgruntled employee again. It's it just doesn't seem to be the right fit, especially because it's kind of it's kind of hard to get your finger on what the hell this villain is after. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love Idris Elba. I mean, it, it's funny because, you know, he's a villain in another Justin Lin movie. He's he's Brixton in um Hobbs and Shaw and he's fantastic in that too but like they don't really give him much to do in this so and and I think that and we've talked about this before one of the worst things that you could do with a Star Trek film is kind of not give your villain a whole hell of a lot of motivation you look at Crawl and and I like him a lot I like Idris Elba I love the makeup on him it looks super freaking cool especially when they dial it back at the end of the movie when he's just like kind of like a shell of a human I really like what they did with that but you put him marbles to marbles with Nero and holy shit like Nero is such an amazing complex motivated villain this guy is more like Krug from Search for Spock. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, and that's not the only allusion I have to previous villains either. But yeah, he's just sort of kind of like bad for the sake of it. That's really my only complaint is like trying to understand the motivation. They explained that he was, I always forget the name of the Terran military organization that predated oh, pre-Starfleet. The yeah, pre-Starfleet. I, too. I always forget it, man. And, and and it's funny because I was really trying to remember it for this one. But you know, he was a warrior, a warrior based on human needs and human responsibilities. He was a soldier. He was a soldier. As he puts it. <laughs> that was good. I was a soldier. And you give me a chair. Alright, that, that was that was pretty good. The the motivation's just a little bit off and again, they throw it in as like a big reveal in the end. And I think that's probably my biggest problem with this movie. Otherwise I really, really, really like it. The villain reveal and how they work to it is kind of a little irritating to me. But everything else that the movie does kind of makes up for it for me, and that's why I enjoy it so much. Yeah, my main issue is kind of just with the villain as well. And it's not even just purely motivational, because like I could get behind his sort of flimsy, just disgruntled, like, they used me, they lo- they forgot about me, and now I'm coming back. It's kind of like Frankenstein in a lot of ways, whereas like Frankenstein never destroyed the monster, he just he was out there wreaking havoc this whole time and just waiting, and like then he was going to come back, you know, kind of situation that I feel is going on. Shoutouts to the monsters that made us podcast. I also get a very sort of F. Murray alien vibe from him from Insurrection, right? Where it's like he is this life force sucking prodigal son of this group, right? In that one, F. Murray Abraham left the colony. He started aging. He was using technology to forego his life and he wanted to come back and take over. In this one, it's sort of the same thing for Balthazar, where it's like after he was sort of excommunicated in a way or just like lost and, and disconnected from his tribe and everything from Starfleet, he's using this weird alien technology to stay old and disfigured and everything and he wants to come back and have revenge. I was like, wow, there's like, that's a very similar kind of thing going on there. I also am not clear on how he's doing that. Like also, if that technology exists, exists wouldn't starfleet like to know that would be amazing like you could live forever forget khan's blood i want crawl's life force sucking technique we need to market that shit and lastly like if he just performed a sneak attack in the very beginning of the movie with his crazy swarm of of ships he would have taken out yorktown base no problem kirk and everyone would be dead and floating in the cold vast darkness of space and he could 
then grab the artifact and go on to do whatever he needs. So there were just a few little issues with that, but that doesn't destroy the movie. Those are just problems with Hollywood big budget screenwriting. That is just sort of, I chalk up to sort of the Kurtzy and Orkman or Orsi and Kurtzman, or I just chalk that up to the writing, you know, like I don't really blame the movie per se. I don't blame Star Trek. I just blame the kind of big budget system for those kinds of problems and maybe the Russian production and stuff. I think the focus in all these movies have been more so on the crew because they're really big stars and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I completely forgot. I did write it in my notes. Just like, why did they not just lead with giant swarms of ships destroying everything? They seem to be doing a pretty good job before Sabotage started playing. But Dan, the biggest missed opportunity, I feel, with this entire production is why they didn't just make Idris Elba a Klingon. Yeah. Make him a Klingon out there who discovered this planet, who has sort of been excommunicated, maybe is very dishonorable, and that would be cool because, like, even the Klingons could show up later to help Starfleet because they know this guy's a threat or something. Make this dude a badass motherfucking Klingon. Give him a marooned planet of pirates that have sort of been trapped there, sort of like the most dangerous game Mm -hmm. where, like, the guy's got the island and he causes shipwrecks and stuff so he can hunt people. Like, that's kind of situation. Like, he's been gathering, like, space pirates to form a crew and looking for this device and everything. That was the biggest bummer, I think, the first time I watched this was, like, these guys aren't Klingons. First of all, that sounds like an amazing plot that would have been a movie of one of the original crew. Like, the original Star Trek movies. Space pirates and Klingons. It's funny, besides them you know, when they jump out of, like, the little pod things and they look like, you know, freaking enemies from Halo. When they pulled down and showed the mask, the first time I watched this movie, I'm just like, oh, shit, they're Klingons. I mean, I don't remember if it was before or after, but they bear a very strong resemblance to the Klingons on Star Trek Discovery. I actually thought for a bit, it's just like, oh, yeah, they brought the Klingons back. Because I know there were Klingons in Into Darkness very briefly. Like, because they're on Kronos at one point. Yeah, yeah. Talking to Khan, like, brokering some kind of deal for his friends that were put into photon torpedoes, I think. It's like some <laughs> kind of ruse that gets them that gets them onto Kronos to begin. He, like, transports himself there. But I think this could have been infinitely better. I guess they really were sold on bringing the crew of the Franklin in to be... Yeah, I, 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 it has to have been something early in the script that they were like, no, no, we have to do this. It's a huge reveal. The audience's jaws are going to drop. They're going to be totally surprised. We have to do it. But did your jaw drop? Because, like, that is not a reveal to me, the idea that the Franklin is the ship that's been out there this whole time. Like, it would have been a bigger reveal to me if these dudes were Klingons, you know? And we got that, like, earlier. And then what also would have been awesome if Jayla was a Klingon, too. But, like, maybe she's because she's an albino Klingon or something, right? Like, her, her alien in this movie is, like, that that really, like, sort of weird, very white skin tone and everything. Like, beyond, like, I'm not talking Caucasian. She's, like, a piece of paper white. Yeah. So, like, it would be cool if, like, that was, like, she was sort of kicked out also because of that like the Klingons are racist and they don't like her because she's different and I, I'm, I don't know or she could just be a Klingon as well that, that wants to help stop this 
crawl who's gone out of control. Um, and part of me does think that there were early drafts in all different directions because his final design is sort of like the Klingons that were introduced in the last movie for a minute or two. It's a, he's a little more reptilian and a little more bluish. Jayla also, her character design, I'm saying like a palette swap. She looked like a, like a pretty boss Klingon herself. And then also the way that they were able to not make it that way makes me believe that there were versions of the script where that wasn't the case, where, you know, everything was sort of laid out with them being who they are uh, going in this direction, too. But it, it was on my mind the entire movie, for sure. Yeah. Do you think maybe they just kind of got a little lucky that this movie came out as good as it did? Just simply making them cling on, making making Jayla cling on like a like just even even if there wasn't a palette swap and she just looked like the rest of the said Klingons on the planet and just was like kind of like an outcast or something like that. I think it would have worked just as well. And maybe we would have like connected a little bit more because I mean, the only thing I can remember that reminds me of the makeup that they have on her is, you know, the aliens at the beginning of Into Darkness that like the indigenous species that they kind of break the prime directive in front of the volcano. Yeah. The volcano. It's that same exact paper white with like very defined, like black lines on it. And it's definitely not the same pattern, but like, that's definitely the same kind of template or palette they were going with. It could have been solved and made things a little bit easier if they built this from the perspective of like a Klingon that maybe was, you know, marooned on the planet super angry, you know, only has rumblings of the Federation. Maybe some way he and his crew can see off the planet, like, because, you know, how he's got some technology from the Franklin. Maybe technology from, like, maybe they're, they're, they've been able to, like, watch somehow. They've been watching and monitoring the Yorktown being built this whole time, and they're just furious, and they're looking for any reason to get off the planet, and they find a way to send one sole soldier through the nebula, and that can be the, the refugee who comes in to start the whole chain of events. They somehow bring down or commandeer the Enterprise and find a way to strengthen their ships to go back out and destroy the Yorktown. Like, that seems a little bit more fluid of, a, like, an angry, angry Klingon. That that could work. I would like that. I got it even more streamlined for you, man, because, like, I feel like they're trying to make this feel, like, one of the older TV episodes as far as sort of the uh, simplicity of it. So, like, here's the deal. Like, okay, your new mission from Yorkshire Base is to be the first ship through the nebula. You're to chart it. So, it wasn't very hard to get through let's be honest like this isn't like when kylo ren found the wayfinder and had to go through that dark force nebula whatever that thing was yeah that was much crazier this is like a asteroid field like there was not a lot of action in there so like okay they make it through maybe they get a little damage but they see a planet uh-oh something's attacking and it's like all right they're marooned immediately you know like it feels much more sort of in the vein of the original episode it's like one two three they don't have as much time they got like 50 minutes so it's like everything's got to happen much faster uh maybe or just like it's just dropping certain information like it makes the movie maybe 10 15 minutes shorter because they don't send a spy through the nebula first but it feels a little more in line with like the spirit of exploration high spirits like confidence and like goodwill like everyone's in a great mood like we're adventuring and then all of a sudden like we get through the nebula and like we're screwed this is terrible like everything's going wrong like morale is destroyed immediately and then so like when they're on the planet with you know this is all our hypothetical version but like it could <laughs> sort of just turn into the movie it is with everybody having to sort of rely on each other to bring each other back up and believe in themselves so that they could get off this rock and back home they got real close and Sophia Batella as Jayla is 
one of my favorite parts of the movie. You know, I think like she's really fresh. I think if they do another movie, she should be the engineer and Scotty should retire. <laughs> like I think, you know, she could be a cool addition to the evolution of this cast. Jay was a lot of fun and they they solicit a lot of fun from the character throughout the whole movie, whether it's her telling, uh, don't touch my traps. And then a few minutes later, we see one of her traps go off. You know how she's, she's listening to Public Enemy. And I know, I know Ice-T wasn't part of Public Enemy, but she refers to Kirk as James T. And I always thought that might be oh, from... Oh, Ice-T. Yeah, because <laughs> he, she hears his whole name. Maybe, maybe that's from like her having listened to other, you know, like, awesome hip-hop and rap from the time maybe yeah other other rappers who screamed were definitely iced tea <laughs> but she's she's fantastic and um she was in um kingsman right valentine's bodyguard right right and shout out again to tom tom club because she was in the mummy the the most latest she played she played the mummy uh against tom cruise oh she's the mummy i still have not seen that I listened to your podcast, and that was enough. <laughs> she's in Atomic Blonde as well, which I think is the only thing I've I've also seen her. She's in she's in this movie Climax, but I think that's a Gaspar No movie, so that's a no no for me at this moment. I don't I, I don't watch his movies anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she kicks ass like she doesn't miss a beat. I like how. They split up most of the crew. I wish it had a little more to do like, okay, so so Spock and McCoy are definitely paired perfectly, right? Like there's no question there. But I just wish like Kirk and Chekhov had a little more sort of like conflict. You know, they sort of paint Chekhov off as a ladies man in this and Kirk, you know what I'm saying? He's like the, he's like space's number one ladies man to begin with so it's kind of it would have been funny if there was sort of some kind of scene where kirk was talking to check off about like it's not cool to like just like love him and leave him and all this kind of stuff like take it from me one of those sort of situations i thought that's where it was going in this movie uh that would have been fun especially because you know they kind of don't even go back to the fact of hinting at Chekhov's age which they only really play with a little bit in the first one but like Chekhov is much younger than everybody else on the crew. I think he's 17 when they first set off in the first mission of the first movie. And and I think that they've said that Kirk was, if it was the five-year mission, that he would, he would have been definitely into his mid or late 20s at that point. Spock is supposed to be like in his early 30s at this point. He's supposed to be like 33 or 34. I actually, I did a little bit of digging about that, but they underutilize him in this movie. They also kind of underutilize Sulu a little bit, I feel. Ahura also. Sulu and Ahura's chief thing that they're doing on the planet is they've been captured. And though I really do like that Ahura has a couple, she throws some fists in this movie. That's pretty cool. And she has to stand there and watch head face hugger, back of scalp lady get vaporized. That's pretty interesting. And then Sulu, they do the great reveal with his partner and their daughter and give him the motivation of how he's so horrified that the Yorktown might be destroyed because his family's on the ship. But yeah, they they don't do much with him either. He's kind of just a prisoner once they get down to the surface. Can I give you my reshuffling of these three characters real quick? Oh, hell yes. 
Because it kind of bothered me that that Ohura and Sulu, we have the woman and the one gay character, they're kidnapped and kind of like locked away most most of the movie. And of the two of them, Ohura's the one that kind of like gets to talk shit to Idris Elba face to face and monologue to him and stuff. And that's okay. What I might have done is put Ohura with Kirk because they sort of have a history pre-star date, right? And he and she needs to sort she sort of needed to like earn his respect and vice versa throughout the series and stuff and then they could be talking about um, the trouble she's having with Spock because Spock's also having sort of trouble with Kirk because both of them are thinking about leaving uh, the Enterprise in their own separate ways and stuff so I think that would have been an interesting mental triangle about things to talk about for Kirk and Ohura and maybe Spock and McCoy to all reference like all those things going on and then to put Chekhov and Sulu together would be cool because you have the pilot and the navigator and so like I have them sort of orchestrating the prison break and as soon as they break out of prison Kirk shows up to save everybody so it's sort of like this not not like uh, comedic but maybe but like also sort of like they have a lighter prison adventure as opposed to just being stuck in a cell the whole time with their friend getting vaporized situation so that's sort of like my reshuffle and then you can maybe even have sulu do like a sword fight against crawls like evil henchmen or something like that and uh you know have like like an action moment there or something but that's sort of my reshuffle yeah i think giving aurora a little bit more of a somebody who who wanted to bounce off the idea that her boyfriend might have suggested that he wants to keep it in the species because she doesn't. She doesn't ever mention it in the movie, does she? She they just no have... no. Uh, Bones has to sort of puts it all together. Right. He's, as he's talking to Spock as to like why he's having problems with Ohura, he's like, "You wanted to get down to making Vulcan babies." <laughs> it's like, wait, you suggested to your girlfriend that you kind of want to make more Vulcan babies. Yeah, it's just, that doesn't. Yeah, sound that you have like... to perpetuate the species. It's like, sorry, hon, but I have to go have sex with every woman on this planet. Like, <laughs> what? And he's like, it's purely logical, don't you? And he's like, damn it, man. It's like he's terrible. He doesn't. He doesn't also realize that he's put a, a giant tracking device on his girlfriend. I mean, that's my favorite. Where he's like, it is merely a radioactive isotope from my. And he's like, you put a tracking device on your girlfriend. And he's like, shit, I did, didn't I? <laughs> he's like, I, I didn't intend it to be that. And it's just like, oh man, that's awful. Yeah, they they've got a lot of issues that relationship. They definitely need to sit down with um. Oh God! Well, it would be Doctor McCoy for some counseling. I, I I wouldn't wish that. Is he a is he a shrink too? No, they would need to go to um. Who is it from Next Gen? Troy. Counselor Troy. <laughs> they need to go to her homeworld and seek some help. Hey, Beta Zed, it's probably interesting. Just a bunch of people that can read your mind all the time. Let's talk a little bit about the action sequences because, like I mentioned before, like Justin Lin does try to make them sort of story and plot motivated. I really like this attack. I like the concept going on, even though we kind of come to find out later i was like where is this army coming from they are just sort of like a drone army whatever that means i take it to mean that they're kind of maybe just like grown or clones or or just whatever i like the concept i like how they split apart how they're sort of like these nano ships or something like i don't know it, it reminds me of what i think of like nanobots right they separate and come together almost like a flock of birds or something like that also how did you feel about the sort of the decimation of the enterprise this time around i love the ships how they not only can they just like kind of fly around destroy things like rip through them they can also drop in and implant and then like open up and the drones or whoever the crew can just kind of pile out and attack i almost reminded me a lot of um have you ever read uh, or seen the movie ender's game the bugs yeah 
but it had that that bug feeling to it a swarm i mean don't, don't they even refer to it as a bees at some point or the swarm i, I feel like jayla calls them the bees i'm sure there's a proper name for them on memory alpha <laughs> yeah as there is for all the planets and everything i think they dropped the name of this planet once shout out planet teaneck by the way the name dropped twice that's the oh, the first planet they're on where kirk's the ambassador um Bit of trivia that I just think is fun. I mentioned to you last night, since we're both from New Jersey, that is named after Teaneck, New Jersey, where Damon Lindelof was is born and from and raised, where he's a, one of the good friends of J.J. Abrams. So I think that was thrown in there for him. I drove through Teaneck today. There we go. Did you see any of those roly-poly creatures running around the streets? No, I did not see any Tanaxians. Well, I mean, I guess I did, because... Wouldn't that just be the inhabitants of the town of Teaneck, the Tanaxians? So I saw tons of Tanaxians today, man. It was it was a beautiful day. They were strolling the streets. <laughs> what I really liked this time around about this action sequence is it reminded me upon rewatching how much it mirrors the final action sequence. Like it's a zero G space fight. Like in this one, Kirk and Crawl are sort of crawling around the Enterprise. <laughs> but like they're they're going all around the Enterprise and being thrown in every direction because it's like, you know, drifting through space and it's falling to the planet and, and the gravity's all out of whack and stuff. And then in the end, when they're in Yorktown, you know, they have to ride what like the slipstream and everything. And because of the way of the geography of the buildings, the gravity's all out of whack and disoriented and, and they're flipping upside and down and stuff. And so I was like, Oh, that's pretty that's pretty clever from a design wise. Like your mind might not pick up on it, but I think stylistically, like, that's pretty smart of someone to be like, sort of the same action scene in two different locations. I love how Justin Lin and or the screenwriters play with gravity in all three of these movies, actually, all, all the directors, um, because so many of the Star Trek shows and movies, if you'll remember, like when the ship gets hit or they hit something, it's just things explode, people fly through the air, and the making yourself shake at your desk. That's usually what happens. In these, the Calvin timeline movies, you know, the ship's flipping over, you're touching the ceiling on bulkheads, the ship turns vertically, and you fall straight down a corridor. Like, I love how they do that in this movie. And yeah, just putting, like, the cherry on top of having that um, gravity slipstream I it, I it caught my ear too I don't know exactly but I just didn't remember the word slipstream there was also in Star Trek Voyager the way that they're able to start moving so quickly beyond warp is using something called um it's Borg technology called slipstream technology and it lets them travel faster than the speed of warp factor nine don't want to don't want to get too nerdy into it <laughs> No, go all the way. Um, so, like, all the uh, the action is sort of predicated on finding that artifact, the the Abronath, the device that is going to sort of ignite the mega weapon that was created on this planet eons ago or whatever and stuff. And so, like, even though this thing is a MacGuffin in the truest sense of the word... Totally. At least it's used, like, perfectly in that way, right? Like, it doesn't bother me, like, because it's so sort of central and so important. Most of the time when you have a MacGuffin, it's kind of a distraction or it's not maybe, like, the most important thing. Like, it's not very central exactly to the overall plot or story. But here, it's, like, everything. And I at least appreciate that, that the idea that the MacGuffin, this artifact thing, that, like, it's driving the entire movie there's something kind of cool about that to be said like in the most classic sense of the term like they're using it like a macguffin even down to like you just get the idea of when they finally activate it 
that it kills you. It rips you to pieces. Like they don't even explain like exactly what it is. They just, they give it a name. They say it's a bioweapon. It was ancient. It was lost because the, the race knew how powerful it was and, and you know, they couldn't destroy it. So they just broke it apart and like threw it out in the different parts of space. But I like that they kind of keep it subtle. And, and as you said, like the MacGuffin, they just, they just really don't give it too much of an identity. And that way you don't have to think about it as much. And in some ways I feel like, especially when you're dealing with something as big as like, you know, it, it, in all sense, it's a nuclear bomb. And, and everybody just knows like the bomb going off at the end is going to be the scary thing. But we're in space. One nuclear bomb is not going to do it. So we need the, what, what's it called again? The Abronath. We need the Abronath to set off at the space station for there to be stakes in the movie. So I, I like what they do with it. I like how they use it to keep the plot rolling. I think a problem I always have with a lot of movies is that information is just coming too late. And so like, I understand they want things to be like revealed in this movie. Like every, every bit of information like needs to be a twist. And especially with Kroll, all these little bits of stuff like about him that we learn are just like pieces of the onion, but it's like, we learn them all too late in the movie for it to be pertinent to his motivation throughout the whole thing. Like, we don't know what's motivating him until it's, like, too late. And so, like, what this kind of made me think of this time is, like, we're coming in to this movie with this character, Crawl or Kroll. The way I think of him is, like, Thanos collecting all the gems and now he's we're only going to see him get the last one like imagine that like imagine if the first time we saw thanos was like in the last avengers movie you know and we only see him get one of the infinity gems and like that's sort of how this character feels we're, we're coming in at the end of his mission but it's sort of the beginning of the story so there's sort of this weird lopsidedness that i'm feeling from it all as from his side of the stuff and i just wish if we knew more about what he's been up to earlier collecting pieces of this thing throughout the galaxy tracking it all down you know calculating that starfleet is in possession of it now if we just learned a little bit of this a lot earlier i think it would even out um much of his problems with motivation that i had and and we might even understand the guy a little bit better i like that too and and again yeah it see i had it in my mind that they said that they broke it into two pieces i thought they said we broke it in half so i guess he was only searching for two pieces but still i mean that could take a long time to get done. But, I mean, I like their formula of starting with, like, the episodic and showing the wear and tear on the crew and everything. But, like, you could have easily kicked it off with him, you know, a very short prologue, almost, of him going out and, and collecting the first piece. Yeah, it would have been interesting if they sort of did a bait and switch early on and it turns out like we're seeing the adventures of the Franklin and not the Enterprise and you're like the guy turns around you think it's going to be Kirk and it turns out to be Balthazar and you're like wait what? And then yeah. you like see them get kind of stranded and maybe like as they're plummeting down to like the surface you know the first part of the artifact is like tumbling down with them or you know like they, they crash land at a temple and he pulls himself out of the wreckage and he finds a piece of the artifact and the movie starts you know yeah. And then we cut to Kirk with the other piece of the artifact, offering it to uh, the Teaneck people, the pe the great people of Teaneck, New Jersey. The great people of Teaneck. That would be a great prelude. I'm sh I'm fairly certain I just said prologue. I think they're like the same thing, right? Are they? Oh my <laughs> God. God. It's been so long since college, and I have a baby. Prelude is stupid. after, I think. Either way, but yeah, that that could have been an easy way just to add a little bit more of a motivation. But then again, you take away from oh no, she's a spy. Oh, no, Kirk was suspicious of her but didn't do anything. Oh, no, what is the Enterprise crew going to do? 
I won't miss that because it bugged me. He should have seen that coming a mile away. Like he, he should have known he'd seen it with Nero. Like he called it. He said to Captain Pike, he's like, we're, we're walking into a trap. He's like, how do you know? He's like, I just know my dad was a Starfleet captain. I was born on a ship. I've got the instinct. He didn't. I'm, I'm joking. Close enough. He should have felt something was off from the get-go and, and his Kirk instincts didn't kick in. Yeah. Man, I might sound like I kind of dogged this movie a little bit tonight, but like ultimately I still really like it. I had a great time watching it. I think it, it goes down a lot better while you're watching it than if while you're like talking about it. You can pick it apart for days, but it's like really smooth and concise while you're watching it. I'm not really bothered, by, especially the first time around. I was not thinking of any of this stuff. I was not thinking about like, why aren't these Klingons? Why, how, how is he sucking their life force? Like none of these things bothered me and they still don't bother me. They're just, you know, for the sake of podcasting, I'm trying to come up with stuff to talk about that, that I find interesting about the movie, you know, different directions we could take it. But before we take it home, you know, is there anything about this movie we didn't talk about that you really love, that you really hated, something that you uh, can't leave without mentioning? All right, I've got I've got a couple of things. I'll try to keep this short. First of all, Bones and Kirk are sitting in that little officer's quarters room and they're toasting to, to Jim and his birthday coming up and they've gotten some some scotch or bourbon that they found in Chekhov's locker. And just the humor of Carl Urban, who is a Kiwi himself, dropping some Southern drawl on Kirk. I, I believe it was Perfect Eyesight or something like, I can't do it. I'm not going to try to do an impersonation of it. But that honestly, like, for a moment, because I've been rereading and rewatching all the Lord of the Rings stuff, and I'm just picturing Carl Urban, this just like this man from New Zealand, trying to throw a little bit of like a southern accent in on something in front of Kirk. Just oh my god, I was losing my mind. I literally had to pause and slap my knees. I was laughing so hard. I don't know if you noticed that, but yeah, Bones is supposed to be from like. Uh, I think he's supposed to be from Georgia. And DeForest, uh, I don't remember exactly. I can't recall many mentions of the South, if I can remember, from DeForest in the original series. But that just made me laugh. And he also mentions in that exchange that he's like a Southern, like some kind of Southern gentleman or something like that to Kirk. That really, really made me laugh. I don't know. Did you did you notice that? So I was kind of surprised when they mentioned that he's from the South because I never picked up on that from Bones. Like, I just thought it was kind of like a funny throwaway line in saying that, like, people from the South don't really have that accent anymore. <laughs> I didn't know he was supposed to have, like, a traditional Southern accent. I just thought he had a very strange sort of way of talking. I thought he just talked weird, you know? Like, I just thought he had a weird way of speaking, like, where he accented certain words stronger than others, but I never picked up on the fact that it was supposed to be, like, you know, what, like, Forrest Gump? Like, like he's supposed to have a sylvan drawl? Like, is he supposed to be Dr. Bones McCoy? Like, I, I don't think so. Like, he ain't no saltooth doctor from Deadwood either. Like, I, I don't... <laughs> That was pretty good. You're 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 hitting you're batting a thousand with the with these these impersonations tonight, man. They're just they're just coming out of the woodwork. Uh, but it didn't bother me. The way I thought about it was like, oh, that's really funny. How like they just don't have a southern accent these days because it's the future. <laughs> so the other thing I w- wanted to say was, um, I really liked piecing together the moment where Spock finds out that um, Ambassador Spock has died. I love how it says that he was only 33 years old by the star date. 
because, you know, they used his original birthday, the date of his actual birth, and the day of his death, which was the start date. In true Despock fashion, he's sitting there pondering his own death. What form of existential nightmare do you think that is? Literally sitting there pondering your own death. The greatest, the greatest... I think unintentionally one of the most amazing moments in the entire Star Trek film series is when Spock opens the box at the end and he sees the portrait of him and all of his friends in the original timeline all have grown old together and have are on like clearly on a mission, you know, have not yep. retired. I don't know what is going through like that's a whole I want to read like a whole book about that moment basically like what is going on in his head and yeah, finding out that like your doppelganger dead like i get into this we i feel like this comes up often on on some shows like we talk about this in the prestige you know the the whole concept of of like slight spoilers possibly for the prestige but the idea of like killing yourself over and over again for your art right like that is sort of a, a general theme in that movie uh facing that when when dan and i again special shout out to Masha's that made us when we talked about the mummy there's a moment in that where the um the spirit of of the mummy's love is reincarnated in a modern day woman and she's in the museum looking down at her own sarcophagus right and the mummy is like that's your actual body you're in the your mind is in the body of another person and she's like freaking out i would have the same it's like the same deal you know it's like that crisis of self the other thing i took from that was i was i went down a little bit of a rabbit hole here because i was thinking to myself oh now you know like you have a rough idea of when you're gonna pass away like could you imagine if you knew the year that and and but here was my thought process was i'm like oh well maybe he doesn't know when they board the jellyfish class alien ship in the first one, the one that Spock comes back in time in. Quinto asked the computer what the manufacturing date of the ship is. It says that it's 2387. So he does, in fact, know when Spock went back in time. So then he can exactly surmise the amount of years that Spock was A's. And it was, a, it was 190 years. Not to get too crazy, so Vulcans like have like a 200-year lifespan, though there is mention of, of some Vulcans that are older throughout the series. But yeah, like imagine if you were to surmise, I mean, it, by our standards, it'd be like double, like it'd be telling you you're going to live to 90. Like maybe that wouldn't be like the worst thing to hear in the world. But to actually be given the year in which your body expires theoretically that's got to be a hell of a pickle to have on your mind especially when you're trying you're in the middle of a crossroads in your 30s like he is trying to figure out his love life and his professional career and his cultural status like uh, i again I, I told you i went down a huge rabbit hole but holy shit what must be going through his head right there i got two things i could think of one is you know because og spock spock prime went back and create and sort of like uh came into this universe right maybe this spock won't die on the exact day and time as Spock Prime because they're experiencing things slightly differently. So maybe he's got an extra week, a month, a year. You know, it could be it could be slightly off, right? But even just knowing roundabout when you're going to die is is pretty freaky. You know, it's, it's sort of like Constantine's problem, right? John Constantine, it's like he 
died when he was a kid. He went to hell and he knows that when he dies, he's going to go back to hell. And it's so like, you know, that's why he's got such a shitty attitude about life, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, what if this Spock goes through another wormhole at some point and goes back in time and creates another universe when he's like 180 years old and we get like a sort of like a third tangent off of all of this kind of stuff? Like it's a way for him to kind of try to repeat what Spock Prime did in a way of like living living his life up to those sort of standards i guess or like do you think he'd go down that same path i mean it's really fascinating to talk about that man because i mean time especially in a lot of the things that they've been doing with star trek like you know time is kind of like a river and in in these like you can't really stop like things things happen for a reason they've made it canon now in Picard, at least in the regular timeline, that the star does explode in the future and destroy Romulus. Like, that is part of the canon of that universe. The universe that seemingly all the old characters in Star Trek and Next Gen and all of our other characters that we're talking about are a part of. So, if the star is gonna go supernova in 2387... It would stand to reason that he would go back as himself, I guess. But having relived, I mean, maybe now that they know it's happening, they could somehow prevent the star from going supernova, or maybe they can outfit the ship earlier so that that Spock can get there and save Romulus before the supernova destroys. I mean, like, it, it, there, there's a lot of interesting ways we could we could get into that. They should start resettling now, like get everybody off of that planet, uh, you know, now, because in, in 100 years, it's going to explode. Real quick, I did end up watching Picard. I was ex- I was supremely disappointed. However, the one thing I did think was cool is that, yes, it is still canon, like that original timeline is still going. Spock in that timeline went back into the went into the wormhole with the red matter and, and the whole nine yards and like even Picard part of the whole thing is like he tried to help the Romulan refugees and everything like that and is taking shit for it and stuff so like you know I did appreciate that much at least that um, you know they're keeping everything that they've done they're trying to work it all in and, and, and make it a continuity of some form. I agree. And and the one thing that I think myself and a lot of Trek fans have been screaming for for years is like, just continue the freaking storyline. Just like, tell us what happened after, you know, about the after the Dominion War. Tell us, you know, what Picard went on to do. To let us know where Janeway's at. You know, like, there are people alive in this universe that, that we want to know more about. And I do like that they kind of furthered the Picard storyline. I'm a, I'm a bit nervous that maybe they'll go the route of, you know, doing more just captains shows. Because as much as I love the television shows and I want to see continuations of the characters. I don't want to see shows that revolve solely around them. I want to see shows that bring us new characters to love and new captains and, you know, uh, engineers and doctors and, and warriors that we can... And the Lower Decks and everybody. I still have not watched Lower Decks. I'm saving it for a rainy day. And also, now that I don't have to suffer through trying to watch it on CBS All Access, which I've had nothing but issues with. But that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> that is the live show I wish they... The live action show I wish they did the most that they made into a cartoon, unfortunately, is just like the, the people on the Lower Decks, just like the grunts and just like the normal citizens and the people who are 
don't even Starfleet, you know? Like, there's a guy here who's trying to make his way to another planet so he could open up, you know, like a farm or something like that. Like, what's his journey like? Yeah, I've not seen it either. They are not done making Star Trek stuff. There's tons of shows, like you mentioned, on, like, the CBS app and and all that kind of thing. They're going strong. I don't think they're ever going to stop. It's just what's up with this crew and this cast and and these movies. I just really want another. Um, Unfortunately, Dan, I don't think we're ever going to get to another part three in any Star Trek franchise series for a long time. So, you know, this may be the last time we get to talk Star Trek on the show exclusively. Is there anything you want to say before we take off regarding Star Trek as as a worldwide phenomenon, as a pseudo-religion, as just one of the greatest, most thought-provoking pieces of entertainment, one of the more groundbreaking, inclusive pieces of entertainment on the air that's ever existed? Is there is there anything else you'd like to say before we take off? I just really happy that you you picked me to come on and do these with you, man. I mean, I love Star Trek so, so much. You know, a lot of people will say about how, you know, between cons and just sitting down and watching the, the show and reliving it with like their families and, and just going back and finding familiarity. And um, I think that the Star Trek franchise really does have something to say about where we could be as the human race through many, 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 many issues and trials and tribulations that happen in in the timeline of what leads up to this future. And it's something that, you know, I think, I, I don't think hope is the right word to say. I just think it's like a nice example of what maybe the human race could be in um, in a couple hundred years. And, and that Give, that does give me hope, and Star Trek gives me hope. If 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 I could say that about it, in a, in in one big conglomerate about what I love about Star Trek, yeah, it, it just it just makes me happy. It makes me happy. Absolutely, very well said. Very good sentiment. Now. Dan, just because there's no more Star Trek to talk about, perhaps you will return this year soon, sooner than later, so we can talk a little, a little more Carl Urban. I'm not quite sure if how much he's in this movie, but I would love to have you back. You, you sort of dropped an Easter egg earlier about this franchise, but uh, I'm, I'm coming up to Return of the King on the show, and I would love to invite you to be a guest on that show. I shall ride with you, my friend. Until then, here's to perfect eyesight and a full head of hair. <laughs> oh, well. going to do it for this episode. Gotta thank Dan DeDuke-Hayden for beaming aboard the show to help out today, and remember everyone, live long and prosper, will ya? Catch me and my co-host, sometimes horror consultant on this show, Dan Cologne and myself on The Monsters That Made Us. Last Friday of every month, we take a look at old Universal monster movies, and our latest episode is on Dracula's Daughter, which is great, so check that out. Also catch me on recent episodes over at High School Slumber Party, where Brian, sometimes unofficial co-host of this show, Late Night Rodriguez, and myself take a stroll down memory lane with 
the two Corys. We are diving deep into the careers of the two Corys over there on High School Slumber Party Podcast. Also, me and Joey did another Elvis episode, so check out Viva Paul Vegas and uh, some GI Blues or whatever I want you to think of very much, also known as Sex Bet. Just kidding, it's not also known as Sex Bet, but it could be. Also, for all things Third Time's a Charm, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Write to me at three at cageclub.me. And until next time... Three, that's a magic number. Yes, it is. It's the magic number. Three, they stubbing me, and that's a magic number. What does it all mean?